I've done other videos on what knowledge is as well as on how to find or determine truth. For those that recall, this delves into the word epistemology or how we come to know what we know. But here I want to examine a very interesting lane of epistemology, specifically in regards to how we come to the conclusions we make about Christ or Christianity and whether or not Christianity is indeed true. You know, people come to their beliefs about everything in a variety of ways. For example, I believe that lobster is amazing. But how did I come to that belief? Well, first, someone, probably my mom or someone like that, told me, you love seafood, so you got to try lobster. And then I tasted lobster, and what I heard about it was confirmed. But does the taste and see method work when we're trying to know God? More importantly, how do the reasons we have in coming to Christ inform or contradict the goal of the person to whom we are coming, namely Jesus? Why will almost always be a bigger question than how. So let's look at three reasons why people might say that they believe in Christ and Christianity to see if they hold weight and can be sustained. Stay tuned until the end. If this is your first time here, make sure and hit that subscribe button and click the bell so that you never miss a video or an interview. Our goal is to help you enter into a confirmed, confident, and eternal relationship with the source of all life and purpose. So the first reason we're going to discuss is I tried it and it worked. Honestly, once we do just a little bit of research or reading, this reason quickly falls away. And when it falls away, you realize how weird this reason actually is. Nowhere in scripture is it suggested or commanded that we become followers of Christ because it works. I mean, seriously, what does that really even mean? What worked? In other words, what wasn't working that now is working? Additionally, many people may mean very different things by saying it worked. Some may mean they prayed for money and then got a promotion, and they may attribute this early success as a Christian believer that this answered prayer is confirmation of God's existence or of your personal salvation. Some may mean that they became a nicer person, and therefore that justifies the veracity of Christianity. But these ideas are dangerous because it means that Jesus' death and resurrection is not quite enough for you to believe. First, you need to see if this thing works, and based on your criteria for assessing the working of Christianity, then you will add that piece of evidence to the finished work of Jesus and the cross and the empty tomb. That would be a no-no. Now, I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit doesn't produce real and sustained change in those who are saved. He does, and that's one of the greatest components or benefits of salvation. But to say it worked seems to place the working in a specific moment in time. So what happens when you feel that it isn't working for you? Do you leave God? Do you, do you try another religion? Also, Peter, Paul, and pretty much every first century saint would have absolutely no idea what you mean. <laughs> when they were getting beaten and fed to lions and crucified upside down and dragged through the streets until they died or set on fire... I'm certain they weren't thinking, yeah, this works for me. So this statement is kind of like a 21st century statement of luxury. 
where we can look at what we've done or acquired and attribute those things back to God and say, it works for me. But don't miss the fact that if you didn't accomplish those things or acquire those things, you would be saying Christianity doesn't work for me. But all of this misses the point of why to be a Christian, which is because it's true. When Yahweh is giving Moses the new stone tablets, the Lord again proclaims to Moses who he is. And then God teaches Moses about his attributes or the attributes of Yahweh. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is the first description of God's attributes found in the Bible. It is also one of the most referenced passages in the Bible. Now here we learn that all of God's actions are an expression of these attributes, compassion, grace, patience, loyal love, and faithfulness. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 records, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Moses immediately knelt low on the ground and worshiped. And a brief side note, once we come to realize the attributes of God and that he is the personal source that grounds all of those attributes, which means we can trust him to always be in alignment with those attributes, our only response should be that of Moses. He worshiped Yahweh. When God describes himself fully for the first time, he communicates that he is abounding in truth. Later, Jesus, another person in the Trinity, God in the flesh said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus doesn't say he has truth. He says he is truth. In the next sentence, Jesus says, If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So there's no disagreement between the Father and the Son, which makes sense because they are one essence. Jesus tells his disciples, and thereby us as well, that I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. Here, Jesus is very explicit. He refers to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth. We are from God. Anyone who knows God listens to us. Anyone who is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. So being from or of God, aka being saved, being a believer in the Lordship of Jesus Christ has the beautiful benefit of being led by the spirit of truth, aka the Holy Spirit. The spirit of truth helps us walk in truth and not be lured by the spirit of deception which is from the enemy of our souls. In fact, scripture makes it clear that in him, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. This means that when you heard and believed the word of truth, which is the gospel of your salvation, it is at that point that you were sealed, also known as saved. You didn't try something and watch it work for you. The truth saved you. The second reason I want to look at is saying that Jesus was a moral teacher, and that's why I follow him. Well, was Jesus a moral teacher? Absolutely. 
C.S. Lewis, who called himself England's most reluctant convert as he made the switch from atheism to Christianity, said this, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You have to make a decision between one of three options. Now, even atheists acknowledge this fact. Skeptics from the first century and beyond acknowledge certain things about Jesus that are very telling of a non-Christian to assert. Luke Johnson, a New Testament scholar at Emory University, wrote, Even the most critical historian can confidently assert that a Jew named Jesus worked as a teacher and wonder worker in Palestine during the reign of Tiberius, was executed by crucifixion under the prefect Pontius Pilate, and continued to have followers after his death. W.E.H. Leckie said this, The character of Jesus has not only been the highest pattern of virtue, but the longest incentive in its practice, and has exerted so deep an influence that it may be truly said that the simple record of three short years of active life has done more to regenerate and to soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and all the exhortations of moralists. And Leckie was an atheist. So I'm not saying, nor is it in question, as to whether or not Jesus was a moral teacher. He was. But that singular fact about him is not a good reason to follow him, nor to believe that he's God. Also, I believe that many people just parrot this back, whether Christian or atheist. In fact, try asking someone who's not a Christian and also says that Jesus was a moral teacher or a good guy, try asking him or her, I agree. Can you think of an example of something he taught you that you think is a good moral principle? Well, he taught that everyone should love everyone, right? Sort of. But more importantly, we have to understand what he meant by the word love. What do you think he meant? Well, obviously that we should love everyone, no matter their choices, no matter their beliefs, no matter their choice of gender. Just show love to everyone. That is, unless they disagree with anything I just said. Jesus obviously doesn't want us to love those people. If you really want to confuse them, ask them, was Jesus a great moral teacher when he said, I came to turn a father against a son? Or what about when he said, let the dead bury their own dead? Or how about his conversation with the Syrophoenician woman when he called her a dog? And they'll probably respond with, oh my God, he's not great after all. And then you can explain the proper context for all of those statements that I just mentioned, none of which is problematic or even mean. In fact, I have a video on that last one with the Syrophoenician woman. And once you understand it in its proper first century Eastern honor, shame, culture context, it's actually quite a beautiful story and a brilliant method of Jesus actually raising the honor of the woman. But the point is, whether someone understands the full context at this point or not shouldn't determine if they trust Christ or Christianity. The question is, did this Jesus, moral teacher, die and then get back up? Is it true. And if it is, which it is, as I've talked about in many other videos, then that is the reason to believe and to trust in Jesus. And then you can spend the rest of your natural life trying to understand all that he taught. 
Additionally, there were many moral teachers, if you want to call them that, however someone defines it. The thing, at least one thing, that separates Jesus from all the rest is that Jesus fully lived the morality he taught and espoused. The morality of Jesus is only as strong as the truth he proclaimed and lived. And finally, the third bad reason to be a Christian is, I want to go to heaven. (laughs) Great. Why? If your answer is, it sounds better than hell, (laughs) then you miss the entire point. Now listen, heaven will be great, but let me talk to Christians for a minute because it's also not our final destination. And I feel like this doesn't get talked about enough. The goal is to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. That was always the goal. The very first mandate given to man was in Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We are to have dominion over the earth. The night before his execution in what is called the high priestly prayer, Jesus is praying for himself, his disciples, and then all of us. Now in the portion where he prays for his disciples, he says this, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them through your name, those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Now, I'm not trying to diminish the beauty and glory of heaven, but our assignment is earth. Jesus prayed that we would be in the world and work in the world, aka earth. Now, I know what some of you are saying. Well, that's just what we do until we finally get to go to heaven. Sort of. Author Don Stewart says, The glorious promise of God is that this earth will be made new. Although it is new, it will have some connection with the old, as is the case with the resurrected body of the believer. There is some mystery in this process. What is clear is that the present heaven and earth will pass away in the form that they are presently in, and God will make something new for believers to enjoy with him. Revelation 21 and 1 reads, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Isaiah 65, 17 reads, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. So beginning, middle, and end, we are on earth or on our way back to earth. GotQuestions.org says, The new earth will be free from sin, evil, sickness, suffering, and death. It will be similar to our current earth, but without the curse of sin. It will be earth as God originally intended it to be. It will be Eden restored. A major feature of the new earth will be the New Jerusalem, John calls it the holy city, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. This glorious city, with its streets of gold and pearly gates, is situated on a new glorious earth. The tree of life will be there. This city represents the final state of redeemed mankind, forever in fellowship with God. God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be 
their God. His servants will serve him. They will see his face. So here and now, we should want to bring heaven to earth. That is what it actually means to be kingdom-minded. Now, in order to properly understand heaven, we also need to understand the goal of God and how the incarnation and resurrection give us a fuller picture of that goal. God had and has the power to go straight from heaven, straight to hell, and defeat Satan. But skipping the earth realm would invalidate justice, love, sacrifice, and God's kingdom rule. Briefly, I'll explain that last point. You see, if God is just, then he cannot violate his own standard, even though he made the rule. This means the punishment and justice that needed to take place due to sin must take place in the earth realm. Therefore, either we would have to suffer that punishment or God could do it for us. Thankfully, he chose the latter. Our decidedly earthly vantage point doesn't always grant us the capacity to see what is relinquished by having a misunderstanding of the resurrection and the incarnation of Jesus. Theologian N.T. Wright writes, Our minds are so conditioned. I'm afraid by Greek philosophy, whether or not we've ever read any of it, that we think of heaven as by definition non-material and earth by definition as non-spiritual or non-heavenly. But that won't do. Part of the central achievement of the incarnation, which is then celebrated in the resurrection and ascension, is that heaven and earth are now joined together with an unbreakable bond and that we, too, are by rights citizens of both together. Amen to that. We can, if we choose, screen out the heavenly dimension and live as flatlanders, materialists. If we do that, we will be buying into a system that will go bad and will wither and die because earth gets its vital life from heaven. In other words, for the believer, our sustenance on earth and in heaven and on the new earth is none other than God himself. So we don't have to wait to get to heaven to know him or experience a life with him, albeit from a different form of life. And we don't trust in Jesus so that we get to go to heaven. We trust in Jesus so that through the church, heaven can influence the earth. But I'd love to know your thoughts in the comments do you agree that these aren't great reasons to be a Christian? What are some other reasons that you've heard people say, maybe even you said yourself in the past, of why they are or you were a Christian? Let me know in the comments. Until next time, peace.